solidarity with the Palestinians is one of the great fault lines running through politics. On the one side are all those who oppose racism and national oppression. On the other, supporters of Western imperialism and Israeli apartheid. That makes every solidarity campaign a fiercely contested space, and perhaps none more so than the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, or BDS. A growing number of academics and other university staff are arguing for BDS on the campuses. In other words, for an institutional academic boycott of Israel. BDS critics hate the idea and argue that it's unfairly picking on Israel. It's an encroachment on free speech and academic freedom and ultimately that it's anti-Semitic. That's why a new book by University of Sydney academic Dr Nick Reamer is so timely. Nick is a senior lecturer in the Discipline of English and the branch president of the National Tertiary Education Union. His book, Boycott Theory and the Struggle for Palestine, Universities, Intellectualism and Liberation, takes apart the arguments of the BDS critics and defends Palestine solidarity on our campuses. He joins us today. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm helping record this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. And I'm Tommy Gadir, also on Wurundjeri land. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me, Tommy and David. Perhaps we should start by explaining what BDS is and how it would apply to universities. How do you see that? Yeah, sure. Well, BDS is a Palestinian civil society campaign that really dates from 2005, officially at least, which just calls on supporters of Justice for Palestine to impose boycotts and to engage in divestment initiatives against Israel, like the ones that were applied against South Africa in the apartheid era, and also to pressure governments to impose sanctions on Israel. The academic part of that actually predates the official BDS call. The academic boycott has been around a bit longer, and there were there were many previous boycott actions stretching right back through the history of Palestinian um, resistance to Israel. And in the academic branch of it, the boycott movement just calls on academics to apply an institutional boycott of Israeli universities. That doesn't mean cutting ties with Israeli academics, but it does mean rejecting any institution level collaboration. So, you know, not attending conferences at Israeli unis, not participating in institutional level exchange schemes, not hosting or collaborating with Israeli university leaders. And the reason for this is just simply that Israeli higher education is a central part of the mechanism of Palestinian oppression. All Israeli universities are structurally involved in maintaining the apartheid system that that Palestinians are living under. You begin the book, and by the way, congratulations on getting it published. That's always a great achievement. You begin by painting a detailed picture of what life is like for staff and students in Palestinian universities. And critics of BDS want to defend Israeli universities, but Israel, as you describe, is presiding over a horrific situation for Palestinian students and scholars. And it's the situation you refer to as scholasticide. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Israel never actually wanted any universities in Palestine in the first place. 
because it saw higher education as a threat to the to the project of Zionist colonization, and it saw universities as institutions which would just reinforce the kind of Palestinian national concept, you know, consciousness that Zionism exists to quash. And when universities did begin to uh, be established after 1967 in Palestine, Israel hoped that they'd create a brain drain of Palestinians to other Middle Eastern states. The reality is that it's, it's just impossible to have a, a functioning higher education system under conditions of military occupation and systematic de-development of the kind that, that Israel imposes on, on Palestinians. Students in the West Bank just can't get to university reliably because of the restrictions on movement. Campuses are regularly raided by the army. Academics and students are regularly arrested, often shockingly at exam times to prevent them from graduating or from finishing their years. Universities are starved of the foreign staff members that all universities need to sort of, you know, remain credible institutions of higher higher learning. I mean, in Australia, we wouldn't want a university which simply employed Australians and Palestinian universities want an international body of, of, of academics in them. But immigration into the West Bank is heavily restricted. Visas are denied for foreign academics. They're abruptly cancelled. There's a sort of military control, actually, over university activity in the West Bank. And in Gaza, of course, it's even worse. There are power shortages that Israel deliberately engineers, which severely disrupt academic life. There's not nearly enough space for students in university institutions. People who want to go to university have already been severely discriminated against in their school education. And of course, the regular wars that Israel unleashes on, on Gaza regularly obliterate university infrastructure. So there's this systematic scholasticide, this systematic attempt to suppress Palestinians' opportunities to access education of all kinds and higher education in particular. And is there anyone inside the Israeli universities who is protesting or reaching out in collegial style across the border? Well, look, there may be. There, there is a very small number of, of people, but in general, Israeli academia has been at best complicit and at worst a direct enabler of this kind of anti-Palestinianism. I mean, universities are central state institutions in Israel and they're in lockstep with the Israeli state's Zionist project. You know, they supply military infrastructure and training. They train officers in the, in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. They give special credits to their students to allow them to take part in military operations as, as reserve soldiers. They systematically repress Palestinian activity on campuses. I mean, it's often impossible to even show a Palestinian flag on a university campus in Israel. So, and, and you know, university leaders in Israel very, very rarely, if ever, actually speak out officially against any of the flagrant violations of their Palestinian colleagues' academic freedom that, that the Israeli government is, is always making. Mm. You, you argue that um, implementing the boycott is meant to undermine Israelis' confidence in their own political choices. 
Um, I find that really interesting because having been exposed to the responses of Israelis to how the outside world sees them, my sense is that the state propaganda apparatus is quite total and all-encompassing and a lot of Israelis are indoctrinated into the view that you know, they are the underdog or the victim in this story. So I'm curious to know um, how you feel that BDS would weaken this kind of manufactured consent that comes from state and media altogether. Yeah, it's an excellent question, Tommy. I mean, BDS starts from the recognition that the political solutions that the international community have, have sponsored have just comprehensively failed. And that includes, of course, the Palestinian Authority, which is a shameful collaborate, you know, collaborationist subcontractor of Israeli oppression of, of, of the Palestinian people. So something different has to be done. Israel likes to see itself as this outpost of, quote-unquote, Western civilization in this sea of, you know, Arab barbarity. That's the way it's, it has traditionally pitched itself. And it really does support, depend on Western support for its, its viability. I mean, just think of the phenomenal arms um, sales that America, for example, um, makes to Israel, the diplomatic support, the unswerving support for Israel in the UN, for example. All of that depends on the support of the elite political class in, in the West. And the boycott is meant to shake that. It's meant to forge a civil society consensus in countries like Australia that Israel is an apartheid state and that it shouldn't be supported. And that's supposed to have a sort of ricochet effect onto Israeli society itself. And it's like any other political strategy. It might not work. You know, there's no certainty in politics. It's a risk. It's a gamble. It's a tactic. What we can say is that boycotts did play a significant role in ending apartheid in South Africa. They weren't the only part of that, that overall strategy, but they were an important part of it. Israel is a much harder political challenge, I think. But there's only one way to find out whether pressure in the West will have this kind of effect on Israeli society in increasingly isolating it, delegitimizing it, in the eyes of the international community. And the only way to see whether that will work is to actually try the boycott properly. And that's what Palestinian civil society have been asking us to do very officially since 2005. And they're asking everyone to do that. You know, So there's a particular call, for instance, from Palestinian trade unions to uh, trade unions around the world to use the union movement to prosecute the, court, the, the, lab, the Palestinian liberation struggle and Certainly in the National Tertiary Education Union, um, that, that is what we're doing. I'm very pleased to say it was a struggle in the NTEU to, to get us there, but we are now much, much further towards being there than we were a decade ago. And that's good, I think, because when an oppressed people articulate a strategy and they call on their supporters to implement it, and when there are no reasons to think that the strategy isn't a great one, then I think it's just a basic response of solidarity to do exactly what they ask us to do. And that's what the BDS campaign is, is there for. It's to respond to that call from Palestinian society for solidarity. Now, you move on in the book to take on and take apart a range of arguments that BDS critics raise. Obviously, the broad criticism they raise is that all of us who support BDS and really who support the Palestinians are anti-Semitic. 
but specifically in this context they use the argument that BDS uh, on universities or between universities is an attack on academic freedom and I know academic freedom is very important for academics so how do, do you argue to square the circle? Yeah, it is a very important value and Zionists always bring up academic freedom in the expectation that, you know, that's just this wild card or this trump card which will automatically end the debate and which just proves that they're right, they've always been right, they always will be right. But of course it's significantly more complex than that. And I think the most basic point is probably that when BDS critics talk about academic freedom, what they mean is academic freedom for Israelis. That's the basic point. Of course, though, Palestinians deserve academic freedom too, yet they're systematically denied it. And not only are they denied academic freedom, their their human rights, their other basic human rights are systematically trampled underfoot. And BDS in general is just a strategy to restore all of those rights, including Palestinians' right to education and more, you know, derivatively, their right to academic freedom. So far from being opposed to academic freedom, BDS supports it in a very direct campaigning way. Now, that's a pretty straightforward argument, actually, because it just says that securing the academic freedom for Palestinians and securing their educational rights more generally is worth violating the rights of a very small number of Israeli academic officials. If you accept the basic you know, principle of academic freedom, namely that research and teaching shouldn't be interfered with politically, then it seems a pretty reasonable trade-off to me to say, okay, we're going to boycott Israeli institutions. We're not going to boycott individual academics. We're going to boycott Israeli institutions because we hope that will contribute to the pressure that Israeli society will ultimately succumb to um, in in turning away from these anti-Palestinian practices. And I think all of that just becomes even more reasonable when, when you accept something which people don't accept, but which is true, which is that actually in universities, academics are boycotting each other all the time. <laughs> it's a surprising thing to say, and I, I go into it in the book in some detail, because it's just not sufficiently realised that academic work is embedded in a political context. And academics continually make decisions about who they're going to collaborate and who they're not going to collaborate with. And if you think of the academic boycott of South Africa as a good example, that was actually way stronger than the academic boycott of Israel because unlike the academic boycott of Israel, the South Africa boycott was a boycott of individual South African academics. So what we're doing in the academic BDS campaign is way uh, back from that in its sort of intensity, and it already respects individual Israeli scholars' academic freedom far more than the South Africa boycott did. But it's really important, if I can just say one more thing about this, maybe, I I think it's really important to recognise that the normal course of academic life consists in these behaviours which we could call boycotts if we wanted to, So, and, and which we do sometimes just directly refer to as boycotts. So, for instance, I think a lot of academics would be very familiar with the idea that you should boycott conferences which are grotesquely gender unbalanced in their selection of keynote speakers. So that's quite a big movement in academia to reject participation, to boycott conferences 
where there are just men giving the keynote, for example. And I think that's entirely appropriate. There's also a call to boycott multinational academic publishers who profit from publicly funded research. So there's a call to boycott Elsevier, for example, not publish in Elsevier journals, not review or edit for them. A lot of universities adopted various, very official kinds of boycott when Russia invaded Ukraine. So boycott is really a, a pretty recurrent feature of academic life. And the only question that leaves us with is, do we think that the violations of Palestinian rights that have been going on in Israel for, you know, decades and decades are serious enough to justify a boycott action? And to me, there's just no question that, that they absolutely are. Yeah, you, you talk very um, convincingly in the book and in a lot of detail about the blocking or the obstacles that are put in place for um, all levels of education from schooling all the way up to university for Palestinians. You know, so there's a kind of boycott in that sense already happening, but in the other way um, that is not, you know, any decision internationally, it's a decision of the Israeli state and the military. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, um, it's pretty horrible detail, but obviously very important to, to know about. The other line of attack that we often hear about from critics of BDS is that it's wrong, if not anti-Semitic, to focus on Israel when there are so many other states that uh, reach human rights that we could be questioning the actions of. And uh, you do take this up in the book at some length. Would you be able to take us through um, a version of that argument? Yeah, sure, Tommy. I mean, this one's easy, I think. Uh, you know, the argument from the Zionists is, look, you boycott Israel, but you're not calling for a boycott of Saudi Arabia or China. You're a disgraceful anti-Semitic hypocrite. That's, that's the line. You know, if you boycott Israel, you should be boycotting other states too. And the first thing to say is that actually any number of BDS activists are involved in other global solidarity campaigns, many of which involve boycott or could involve boycott. I mean, you know, the choice whether boycott is the right tactic for a particular global justice campaign is a tactical choice. It may be appropriate in one context and not in another. The general point is that if you support BDS, you're very likely to support almost any other global justice campaign. I mean, support for Palestine is quite a litmus test on the left, I think. You know, there are a lot of people who are progressive except Palestine. You know, they support a lot of other progressive causes but draw the line at, at, at criticising Israel and supporting Palestine. So supporting Palestine, supporting it through the boycott is about the furthest, the, you know, the most decisively left-wing position I think you can take in, in issues of global justice and international politics. So just factually wrong to say that you're not supporting other campaigns when you're when you are supporting the the Israel boycott. Activists typically are doing both, but even if they weren't, the objection is just it's supremely liberal and individualistic. You know, it's all about what personal actions you are or aren't taking, and it's usually raised in the complete absence of any considerations about what actual global justice campaigns exist. I mean, they. The fact is that there is this really significant global campaign against Israelis apartheid. There's no campaign of any similar scale against South 
against Saudi Arabia, Arabia, for example. No doubt there should be, but there isn't. And we all have to make choices about what it makes most sense for us to prioritize. And the idea that you should not participate in this really vibrant campaign against Israeli apartheid, this campaign which has enormous momentum, because first you need to commit to some campaign which doesn't actually even exist yet, directed against some other country. I mean, it's, it's just, it's really absurd. It springs from this very abstracted and, as I say, liberal and individualistic view of politics, which pays no attention to what the actual balance of forces is and what campaigns are actually existing in, in the real world. And, of course, the logic of that criticism is that you can't engage in action anywhere unless you engage in action everywhere. And that's clearly just not viable. As activists, we constantly have to choose what our priorities are, what our field of operation is. And as you say, I think the issue of Palestine is a litmus test, and partly that's because it goes to the heart of the project of US imperialism to dominate the Middle East, uh, and the enormous oil reserves and the trade routes and, and so on. So in taking up the cause of the Palestinians, we're not just supporting the Palestinians, although that's a given. We're also challenging a particular way of carving up the world and running it, which is extremely cynical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the campaign for Palestinian rights, I think one of the reasons it's so important is that it's at the intersection of all of these really crucial global struggles. It's an anti-racist struggle. It's an anti-fascist struggle. It's a struggle for the rights of indigenous people, the Palestinians. And as you say, David, it's also a struggle against the global economic system with the US at its centre. You write in the book, and I find this intriguing, that, and I quote, universities around the world are being increasingly Israelized. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I do describe universities as being Israelized, um, and I use that as a way of describing what's happened to universities in the last several decades under what, you know, for shorthand we can call neoliberalism. And what that has meant, and I think this will be familiar to anyone who has experience at a contemporary university, is that universities are typically highly authoritarian, highly coercive places, but they dress all of that up in this veneer of liberal progressivism, just like Israel dresses its own authoritarian and coercive and murderous practices to Palestinians up. Um, you know, universities perpetuate structural wage theft against their casual staff. They, they often repress dissent quite harshly. Palestine activists in many places you know, know that very well. And there are also these just mind-boggling managerial tyrannies. But universities continually pretend, despite all of that, to be these beacons of rationality and openness, just like Israel claims to be the Middle East's only democracy. Now, Pointing out that parallel is in no way to suggest that universities are as important for the left, for example, as Palestine is. Palestine is this massively important global global justice issue, and I don't want to trivialise it by drawing this comparison. But I think the comparison is worth making because it highlights just how far this consciousness of mystification or this, this urge to mystify what's actually happening in our environment runs. We see it in universities, we see it in Israel, we see it in so many different areas of uh, political debate. 
And it's just, it's worth noting the parallel, I think, because it's a bit more than just a parallel when you consider that the leadership of universities throughout the West, you know, in Israel itself uh, and in the West, in, you know, Australia, certainly in the US and the UK, almost anywhere you care to look, the leadership of universities are often senior government figures, senior civil servants, former senior civil servants, or future senior government figures. And the functions that they fulfil in those governmental roles is, are ones that quite often do involve pretty repressive actions. Or they're people who are complicit with or accountable for the repressive actions of you know, states in, in one way or another. So to give one example, just a local example from Australia, Glyn Davis, who's the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, was an extremely senior state public servant before he took on that role, and he's now an extremely senior federal public servant. He's secretary of the Prime Minister of the uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And so he's someone who has a key role in all of the you know, the, the very large number of highly regressive things the Australian government is currently doing, including maintaining Australia's pretty much unconditional support for Israel. So this is someone who has led a university, who has overseen massive wage theft against precarious staff, for instance, and is now being called on to step into this other role, which you'd sort of hope would be entirely different. You'd hope that a university and a state would be quite different, but actually they can just have exactly the same people running them. And those same dispositions of, of repression, that same acquiescence or you know, actual accountability or responsibility for these quite repressive quite repressive practices is the same in, in both in in both roles. So I think the comparison between you know, the, the idea that universities are little Israels, as I call them in the book, actually is a bit more than just an analogy. And of course that also comes through concretely in that university administrations and vice-chancellors are not going to be sympathetic to BDS. And in fact, many universities have now adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which incorporates a specific ruling that criticising Israel can be seen as anti-Semitic. Pleased to see that the University of Adelaide a week or two ago rejected that ruling, but they're standing against the stream. As someone who's been very identified with the BDS campaign, what's been the response of the university, either officially or unofficially, to you and other people engaged around the question? I mean, Palestine activism at Sydney University in various forms, and I'm glad to say I'm not the only person far from it who's involved in Palestine activism at the University of Sydney, but, you know, we, we have faced all sorts of attempts to quash and stifle us. My colleague Jake Lynch, for example, uh, about a decade ago now, was dragged through the courts by an Israeli so-called lawfare organisation on completely trumped up grounds of racial discrimination just for applying the academic boycott, the institutional academic boycott. And the then administration of the University of Sydney offered him no support whatsoever. So it's clear, I think, that in the say in the last decade on this campus at the University of Sydney and I think also in Australia more generally, 
awareness of the academic boycott has really grown and Palestine activism has carved out a place for it, which it, it didn't have before. I think that campuses are now somewhat safer places to engage in Palestine activism, at least on some campuses than they were. And that's testament, I think, to the power of staunch and relentless campaigning. But there are still risks involved. The Zionist lobby in Australia is particularly right-wing. It's particularly loud. I think it's also pretty stupid. That's something that I have been been made aware of. The very low quality, I would say, the very low intellectual quality and the very low levels of political mass of the people driving Zionist repression in Australia and the, pe- the people who are urging universities to take action against Palestine activism are usually of quite a low political and certainly a low intellectual caliber. And I think that plays appropriately for us. We have all the good arguments in our campaign and there's only, I think, a certain extent to which you can, you can be blind to that without it starting to feel, without it's starting to feel as though you're, you're, you're really making a really basic kind of mistake. That parallel is really striking between universities and the state of Israel and one that I never would have made without your book. <laughs> so that's really, really interesting. Uh, and like you, I'm an academic uh, and a member of the NTU. So I was particularly intrigued by your final argument that intellectual activity is and I quote, the opium of the educated and can be a break on progress. And given that you're both an intellectual and an activist, how do you think the limitations of being an academic or of academia can be overcome and those two identities can be combined in a positive way? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because the, one of the things I do address in the book is this you know, classic debate on the left which is about the relative importance and the interactions between theory and practice in, in political change. And that goes under, that debate appears under a lot of different terms. You know, there's ideas and action, theory and practice, consciousness and spontaneity, to give it a sort of Marxist twist. And in the last chapter of the book, I, I do look pretty generally at the connections between thinking, between intellectual work and political inaction not political action but political inaction Mm. and i try to explore some of the ways that intellectual work i think can and often does exert a conservatizing political impact you know academics do like to pat themselves on the backs all the time um, and congratulate themselves for being inherently very or for, for doing something inherently very progressive just in virtue of the fact that they work in a university and do research and, and teach. But I think that, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I'd love it if that was true, but unfortunately I think you need to do a bit more than just research and teach to get a progressive label. That's not to say that academic work isn't actually valuable in itself. I think it usually absolutely is. But there is this often unspoken congratulation that, you know, people in, in my profession, in yours, Tommy, you know, go, go in for, especially in the humanities, actually, where there's this idea that the very fact of engaging in academic work is, is progressive politically in itself. And, and what makes the, the academic boycott just so interesting, I think, and also a, a really important example for the left, 
is that it's this case where political advance or political progress doesn't arise from explicitly getting on with intellectual work. It arises from the exact opposite. It arises from saying, okay, we're going to stop intellectual work. We're not going to do this academic work in these particular contexts, contexts of institutional collaboration with Israel. We're going to suspend it because that's where progress comes from. And it's like when we go on strike, you know, when we go on strike, we say that there is actually something more important than engaging in the kind of organised thinking that universities sponsor. And I just think there's a, an important lesson there more broadly about the risks of what in the book I call smart washing, um, <laughs> which is just this idea that you dress up a position that's actually politically regressive with a lot of claims of how intellectually rich, deep, sophisticated complex it is. That's what smart washing is. And we just see it all the time. Now, how often are you told in progressive campaigns that, you know, you shouldn't be saying what you're saying because it's actually far more complex than that. You know, how often are we told we're being simplistic, naive? You know, that's a classic instance of smart washing and it's always used against, the, against Palestine solidarity in universities as well. And so the book ends with a sort of critique of this smart washing. And it says that really, in order to actually have a progressive political effect, you, there's a certain kind of anti-intellectualism you need, a certain kind of anti-intellectualism. And I say that as someone who thinks that intellectual work is extremely important and valuable and should be properly funded, free of interference, you know, allowed to take its own own course. But let's not dress it up. Let's that that's what makes it valuable. Let's not dress it up as something which is also mysteriously this great political blow for the left. And let's acknowledge that there are times where the right thing to do is stop in the intellectual work. And the academic boycott of Israel is certainly one of those times. Mm. Have you um, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Of course. <laughs> Um, this reminds me, uh, it's not a precise parallel, but it does remind me very much of the joy I got out of reading this article by um, Kieran Healy called Fuck Nuance, which you're probably familiar with. Yeah, I actually I actually referenced that article in the book. Ah. That is a, that's, that's a great article, Fuck Nuance, yeah. I mean, it's such a common and easy way of preventing people taking sides, you know, claiming that, Things are far too complicated. The activist is a simplifier. You know, they're distorting the facts. But what we need in politics is clarification. You know, we don't need to make things more and more complex. We need to clarify them so we know what side we should stand on. Because if the world isn't simple enough or clarified enough to allow you to know which side you should be on, then you're unable to be a political actor. Hmm. Which well, side are you on? Well, I think we're all on the same, <laughs> same side here because we're actually recording this in the same week as we'll all, all of us be taking part in protest to mark the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, the destruction of historic Palestine by the New Zionist state. So, Nick, would you like to take us out by telling listeners how and where they can get involved in the campaign for BDS and for Palestinian rights more broadly? This is, won't be published 
until after the Nakba rallies, but there's going to be plenty more to get involved in. Yeah, there will be, David, that's right. And look, I think the basic point that should govern everything is that BDS is a Palestinian-led campaign, and I think that's a very important part of it. You know, uh, solidarity activists around the world need to listen to what the oppressed people themselves are saying about what the what forms the campaign should take. And the, the best way to do that is to go to the BDS Movement website, bdsmovement.net, to just have a look at all of the campaign ideas. And the boycott is really front and centre of, of Palestine solidarity. And there are any number of ways we can participate in that. So there are lots of targeted consumer boycotts that are current at the moment. So there's a boycott against the you know IT supplied by HP. Um, there's a boycott against Puma sporting, sporting goods. There are boycotts against Israeli dates. There's a boycott against SodaStream. I won't go into why. There are all good reasons for which these companies are, you know, enablers of Israeli apartheid and, sh- and should be shunned. You can, if you ha- if you have superannuation, you should be encouraging your super fund. You should write to your super funds to encourage them to divest from companies which are complicit with Israeli apartheid. There's a UN list that you can find um, of, of, of these companies. If you live in Victoria, um, the Israeli arms manufacturer Elbit has a collaboration with RMIT. And you can look at the BDS Australia website for some information on that. I mean, that's just scandalous and it should, should be ended immediately. And apart from that, apart from those concrete boycott actions, it's, I think, just very important. I, I think activism is very important. Turn up to demonstrations. Join campaign groups. There are lots of collectives, whether you live in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, uh, Adelaide, anywhere. There are lots of campaign groups that you can involve yourself in. The socialist groups are all, you know, staunchly pro-Palestinian. So there are any number of opportunities for getting involved with the Palestine campaign, which just is one of the most important global justice campaigns that I think I think there is. And it's great that there are so many different ways that people can involve themselves with it. Well, thanks for your time today, Nick. Congratulations again on the book. I know that all three of us will be out protesting in solidarity with the Palestinians um, a few days from this recording, and we will be out again on the streets at every available opportunity. So thank you again, and it's uh, goodbye from me. Thanks very much, Nick. Really enjoyable interview. Thanks a lot, Tommy and David. Always great to talk to Solidarity.